Hello and welcome to Funny Business, a podcast for free thinkers. I'm Robbie Hicks. And I'm Lockie Bradford. And on today's episode, we have Ed Cowan. Uh, what an absolute treat we have for you. He's an awesome bloke with an awesome story. And he's done plenty of things, Rob. He was pretty incredible to talk to, talking about high-performing cultures, uh, his journey to represent Australia at the highest level for cricket, and then transitioning to his new career at, uh, in, as the investment team at TDM Growth Partners. Oh, I like it. And his picture, he's looking sharp, trustworthy, just all the things you want uh, in a growth partner. So, <laughs> Ed, we love you. We love this chat. Um, hey, let us know what you think of this episode, because I reckon it's an absolute belter. And uh, special thanks to our partners the show, Heaps Normal, as well. For those who are listening at home, to give you a bit of context, um, who are you and what do you do? Well, have you, how long have you got here? Um, that's a, a bloody hard question to, to answer, because it feels like I've got a few different burners simultaneously going in, on in my life, uh, Robin Locke. It's almost as though... Uh, you know, Derek Zoolander was described as a slashy, you know, actor slash model. I'm certainly neither of those, but I if, just to give you a sense of a few things that have happened or are happening. Obviously, um, not obvious to, to many because I was useless at it. But I played cricket for a, for a long time uh, as part of my professional career for 16 years. Uh, I've got a side hustle, Tripod Coffee, selling uh, we're Australia's biggest compostable uh, coffee capsule provider. I work in the investment team at TDM Growth, which is just an awesome place to spend most of my working week. Uh, we invest in, in businesses in Australia and, and overseas in public and private markets in a really concentrated manner, but I'm sure we'll dig into that. Um, I sit on the Cricket New South Wales um, board and, and love giving back to the game. I'm a dad, I'm a husband. Hopefully they're at the top of my priorities most of the time, but sometimes they sadly slip down. Um, and and just trying to, you know, work work through this wonderful How do you world. Find time for everything. Yeah. You've got twenty eight yeah, hours in your days, yeah. We just we juggle back to back. All <laughs> oh, I don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually don't sleep. At you all, look good ever. for someone who doesn't sleep. Uh, <laughs> well, how did you get into investment? Because that's totally different than cricket. If if you don't mind, can you rewind back to like, did you study it while you were playing cricket? Yeah, yeah. This is a. I mean, it's a, I was a bit of a black sheep of the cricket community, you might say, because I went to university uh, and decided that you know cricket wasn't uh, going to be my whole entire life forever. I'm from a, a very business minded family. My dad as long as I can remember his work for himself, um, you know, doing a whole range of kind of entrepreneurial things. Uh, there used to be a fight in the morning growing up, you know, like uh, in the, the Fairfax News, the sport and the business are on, the, on the, the front and back page of one section of the newspaper and there'd be a fight for that section of the paper. The family fight was over the business section, uh, not the sports section, which was uh, always a bit weird, but, you know, also a family that, grew up loving sport and so you know I've got two my brothers that went into business um I went to sport but that was almost seen as you know what's he what's he thinking he's going to going to the world of sport but the the, the only thing that you know and it was great advice that dad always said was mate you, you never know when your sporting career is going to end make sure you you finish your education so I did. I did a, a uni degree and ended up doing a master's degree while I was playing cricket. Uh, always been a passionate investor. 
did a lot of part-time work while I was playing cricket, whether it be at an investment bank or, um, you know, TDM where I'm working now. So it, it was always in the blood, so to speak. Um, but it was just my focus was, was diverted towards cricket for a, you know, for a decade and a half. But the, the, the business blood was always kind of, I was leading this, this secret double life in the cricket change room with the guy that, wouldn't mind, you know, reading The Economist rather than <laughs> Zoom, <laughs> Zoom bag, huh? didn't didn't go down too well. Sometimes I'd have to hide The Economist inside the zoo just so, you know, they knew I was one of the boys. Um, but it, it's it's made transition out of sport easier. It hasn't been easy. and I don't think it's easy for any sportsman. And maybe that's something we can touch on as well because it's, it's, it's bloody hard, um, you know, Picking your, your passion, your main passion up, and, and, and seeing that disappear in a, in a sense, it's a sense of identity, and it's what you've been following for so long to, to try and do something else and dedicate your passion elsewhere is hard. But I, I found it a lot easier because I sort of had these dual passions running. Obviously, tripod we started six years ago, still you know well and truly playing at that point in time. Started with a with another mate who I was opening the batting with at the time down in Tassie. So, you know, big cricket connection in that business. Uh, so it's kind of, you know, I've likened it to to always having different burners on, as I said at the start, but it's just different things have fired up at, at different stages. But I've never just been a sportsman or just been an investor. There's always been a blend of You mentioned you're like the black sheep. Um, we've had a few different people <clears throat> from a sporting background on the pod and that transition out of sports and always an interesting topic of, People, like you mentioned, they have their self-identity, self-worth. Um, they're super passionate about uh, a sporting career or what, what that is that they're they're pursuing, and um, it can just be taken away in a blink of an eye for some people. And not being ready to transition out, uh, I know for myself personally, and the people in my circles, I've I've got a lot of people who have struggled if, in in the footy sense that footy career's over. What do I do now? What's my what? what are, why am I actually here? What can I find that I am still interested in, I can build a career, strengths? what are my strengths, yeah. what do I do, all that sort of questions that mm. come out of it. Um, to hear you, you refer to yourself a bit as the black sheep because you were studying and interested in something more than just sport, I think it's a really interesting topic. I'd love to hear your thoughts more around, I guess, as you've come through the ranks and being involved in sport, why was it seen like that for you then and how do you think it's changed for the next generation coming through? Yeah, love to to dig into this. It's something that I'm becoming super passionate about. I was always passionate about transition, but having seen how hard it is, even for me, you know, a degree, a master's, work experience, other interests, and it's still been a hard journey. It's it's given me some empathy as to the reason why I think over my 15 years I would have played with 200 professional sports people. I could count on one hand people that five years on were in a job they loved. Quite a few people had jobs, but they didn't have passions, you know, and so it's really opened my eyes to this and, and I've been trying to do some work around helping athletes transition, but that's a separate story. Okay. Why is it so hard? You've touched on that, you know, like your identity is, is wrapped up in, in performance a lot of the time. It's wrapped up in, in this is, you know, I've given all my energy to this silo of my life. I, don't, I mean, I, I jokingly kind of use the word black sheep. It was encouraged to study and more so, you know, like particularly cricket, they're doing a wonderful job around supporting players to study. 
you know, the, the Cricketers Association will pay for any course that you want to do while you're playing, for instance. But it also needs buy-in from coaches because it's one thing for the Players Association to say, you know, we want you to be studying, we want you doing part-time work. There's no time created by the coaches. If they're not buying into the benefits of creating an all-round athlete, then, you know, you're, you're pissing into the wind a lot of the time. So, you know, as an ecosystem, as a sport ecosystem, we really need to be supporting athletes to be doing more because you have to be earning or learning in, in my mind while you're playing because as soon as that that career finishes the real world is an absolute shock for many uh, you know like you, your routines have been so bad your timetable's been mapped out and now it's and for yourself the good news is and the, for all athletes every single athlete doesn't matter if you've been to uni have no interest all the skills that you've learnt in sport are highly translatable and they hear that the whole time but to, to know that uh, the skills around performance and high performance are craved for in the business world and not necessarily the business world, whether it be trades, whether it be um, other ways of, of adding value to society, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be in business, but the tools you've learned are so applicable, but it's how you apply them. And so I think a lot of the problem comes from, particularly high, high profile athletes think, I've, cl I've climbed this mountain I'm now at the at the bottom of the next mountain. A lot of people think you can just paraglide from the top of one mountain to the other. Oh, I'll finish my career. I'll be the CEO of a business. You know, you go right down to base camp. You've got all the tools to climb the mountain really quickly, but your ego prevents you from realizing that you're actually at the bottom of the mountain. And so understanding that, you know what, this transition thing, it might take five years to work out what my next passion is. It might take five years for me to be earning as much money as I was playing sport. I may never earn as much money as I was playing sport, but I'm going to derive a heap of um, happiness from the next journey of, of climbing this mountain as opposed to, you know, I was the best player in the world. And so that the top of that mountain, I'm just going to, you know, walk across to, to that um, over on the horizon. So it's, it's being humble. Um, it, it is a humbling experience, <laughs> you know, um, you know, particularly the older, the longer you play, the older you are when you leave sport, it more than likely means that you might be 35 and your boss could be 25, um, you know, and have no experience outside that job. But that's the world that you need to, to get your head around and understand how you're going to add value in, in that next role. Jumped around there a heap, but tried to tried to get the, the, the key ideas yeah, out. I love that. Well, Juddy was saying, we had Chris Judd on the pod and he was saying how after his career, he'd done a personality test and he, and he found that as a really good guiding point into what he should be doing next, like investment and stuff. Cause it was like, I think he said something about people and stuff and he, he was more focused on the ideas and he really mapped out what he, you know, sort of saw as his strengths and sort of pursued that. And now he's sort of killing it there in that, in that space. But do you sort of have to love he's the process it, yeah. of the journey? Like, starting from scratch again and going, well, I've done this in sport. Can I do this in another thing where I can work my way up? Yeah, you've got to be motivated for, for the next challenge. And partly that's the problem. People get stuck in base camp because they actually don't know what mountain they, they want to climb next uh, to keep the analogy kind of rolling on. And that comes from while you are in your sporting career, you've got to be you know, finding... Yeah, the things that are getting you going outside of sport. What are the things that really interest you? And it doesn't have, as I said, it doesn't have to be business. Um, 
but there has to be an underlying passion somewhere. It might be making things. It might be coaching uh, other people in your sport or elsewhere. It might be um, learning. Whatever that passion is, you got to re-engage that because that's going to get you out of bed in the morning. There are a whole heap of elite athletes that finish that struggle to get out of bed in the morning because there's no reason to, to do that. And that depressive spiral is real. Um, I've seen it. Um, and, a, and it's really you mentioned debilitating. The, um, the schedule's been laid out for you. And <clears throat> we talked to a few different people and around like, it's almost like institutionalization where people have been uh, like, you go to school, you've been in these elite programs, school, you get, you know, when you eat, you know, when you go to class, the bell rings, you move into these sporting programs where your calendar's laid out for you, you know, who you need to go to. You've got all these support structures around you that are there to help you be the best that you can. But when that door closes, those support structures disappear. That routine you have laid out for yourself that you've been used to for majority of your life is now gone. How have you personally adapted to your new routine and building up like structure structure mm. into your life? Yeah. Oh, absolutely spot on. That is part of the, the reason it feels like emotionally that you get left at a train station and you look up and the train just keeps moving look at the station there's no one around anymore um not, not even people waving off the back of the train you're, you're on your own uh for me i was always a really routine and structured person so i'm probably a bad person to ask this like routine and structure were part of the reason why i was good at cricket and so you know particularly opening the batting you knew when you were gonna be batting it was either usually at 11 o'clock on day one or you know lunchtime the next, but you could kind of work backwards from there in terms of your preparation and so on game day if you win the toss the hour before i went out to bat would be mapped out to every five minutes just for my own personal preparation so for me and every ball you face it's the same routine same amount of taps same amount of breaths and so i saw the benefit of a personal routine forget the overarching architecture of you've got to be at training at midday got to lift weights at three what you know eat at two Forget that sort of overarching architecture. I was a very um, disciplined and um, you know, structured person in my, in my everyday life. And you ask my wife this, if there's a change of any kind of plan at any stage of the day, I get very frustrated by that. So in that sense, it, it was a lot easier for me. But there are a couple of, there are a few things that, you know, I'd probably call out. I made sure that I, I get up every morning at, let's say six and, and do some kind of exercise. And a lot of people fall off the athlete kind of world and they, they feel as though, oh, finally, I don't need to train. For me, it was actually, I, I want to keep training because the discipline involved of, of, of physical conditioning is really important, not only to my structure and routine, but I just feel good doing it. So let's make sure that I commit to that. Uh, let's make sure I commit to something competitive. And so kept playing club cricket for a couple of years after I'd finished professional cricket. It's now golf on a Saturday. Like I know that I need something competitive in my life. Otherwise I get really scratchy um, at home and start, you know, trying to compete with my wife and my daughter. And that, that's not, that's not fun. Um, so I had all these little cues that kind of made me join the dots as to what my life outside of cricket may look like and may, made sure that, you know, I started joining them pretty quickly. Not when I finished, but you know, 
I view my transition, it was five years before I finished and five years after, so it's a 10-year process. It's not six months before I finished, I was like, oh, God, what am I going to do? And six months after, oh, well, I'm in a job now, so I've transitioned. It's like a full 10-year, decade-long transition. It's a, it's a moment in time, and that's why the blend throughout why you play and after you finish is, is so important. I like that. Take us back to like some high pressure moments. Like you mentioned you opened the batting like for Australia and, and, you know, state cricket, all that jazz. Like take us through the mindset of a, of an opening batsman in a high pressure situation. Like how, how much, like I think cricket, like every sport's in between the eyes, I know, but like cricket, especially like being an opening batsman facing you know, a fast bowler or whatever, you got all this pressure to perform. How do you sort of escape that and just, stay present in the moment like is it the routine that is it the breast is it that that just sort of keeps your mind focused yeah and and you'd know lock because i know that you know your cricket career was pretty high flying as well so you know i'll talk to you specifically on, on this one just to make sure that you know we're, we're talking the same language but i'm ha- happy to set the scene you win the toss you bat it happens to be boxing day and there are ninety thousand people at the mcg and it just so happens to be the biggest sporting event watched in Australia during a calendar year. No biggie. Um, the difference between, you know, AFL footy or rugby league, there are 15 people on the park going smack bang. You touch the ball once, you get smashed, get up, go again. Opening the batting, all eyes are on you as the opening. You're facing the first ball. They aren't watching anyone else. And so... The, the compounding factor at play is if you nick the first one, you are out, <laughs> evidently. Your day is over. Your game is ruined. You've contributed nothing to the team. Uh, and everyone at the pub thinks you're an absolute jackass and, and will tell you about it. So there are, you know, there's, there's lots of kind of different pressures. And above all else, your own personal intrinsic motivation to be a match winner and be the best player you can be has been shattered. So, you know, there's a whole range of different competing pressures. How to deal with that is the defining factor between being not just a great player, but a world-class player. Everyone, and I saw, you know, generational best players ever to be produced in the last 50 years, you can probably guess, um, you know, throw up in, in the toilet before they bat. Absolutely petrified. But the moment that it was their time to bat, game face like no, you wouldn't know and and the public wouldn't know but they are crippled with fear but how you deal with that fear and deal with that pressure is is the defining factor of of how long you play for really and so for me and i've kind of already touched on it, it was about um it was about routine because that is something that i could control i couldn't control and sorry if i'm going no, too deep here into you know performance psychology um I, I could not control the ball that was coming out of the bowler's hand. I couldn't control um, you know, how he was trying to get me out. I kind of kind of knew and I could prepare for that, but he was in control of the ball. I was in control of how I reacted to that ball. And so the best way of preparing for that reaction moment was to go back to something that I knew, and that was a routine. I'd three taps, a breath between each tap, some positive self-talk, and then there might be a cue like, watch the ball might be play straight it would change from from time to time to keep it fresh which was really important for me but i'd control that moment because i was in control i'd be very relaxed and the last thing that you ever want to be doing under pressure is to feel the pressure you need to to almost um 
distract your subconscious and your subconscious will have lots of bad negative thoughts you need to find a way of distracting that some people might sing a song but self-talk whatever it is good batting was very meditational because of the breathing and the rhythm and the routine and then that this this long minute long pause between the next ball and you'd step out and you'd, you'd find a way of distracting your subconscious again and you'd step back in and you'd do it all again and it was really you know you could get in a you could get in a trance and you know when that was happening the crowd was just a back a backdrop and white noise the bowler was kind of running in but you know it was invariably who cares there's just going to be a, at some stage a ball coming at me and i'm just going to react to that ball and and then there'll be another one and another one hopefully for six hours and and you look up and, and you've done your job but the convert the, the the converse of that is you could have your routine you could do all this and there'd be this little thing in the back of your head that was like, it's going to bounce you, you know, he's going to bounce you, you know, if he bounces, you've got to play the quick shot because, you know, there's no one out there and you'll get four runs and, and you get all, the, you know, all this information and you get ahead of yourself and he'd either bounce you because, you know, you're pretty good at understanding what might come next and you hit it up in the air, straight up in the air because you wouldn't execute, you wouldn't react as well as you can or you, he doesn't bounce you and you, you've got a very clouded judgment of, of what's, uh, what's happening and how you react. And it might get you out, it might not get you out. But that and dealing with, oh, if he gets me out, we're going to be two for 10. You know, like all the all the information, if, if that's what you're hearing, you've got no clarity of, of thought. Your reaction's going to be slow. It's going to be muddled and usually incorrect. And so good batting is, is actually about a, a deep focus on one thing only. And that is, there's a ball and I need to react to it. It sounds easy, but my goodness, um, it can be an, an absolute, you know, mind. We can swear, we can swear mind but, yeah. Hey, you're talking uh, about like six hours <laughs> at the crease. One of the things compared to other sports that when Locke and I talk about what's we, – we, we challenge about different sports, we, we, we debate over whatever we, whatever we want to talk about. But it, cricket's one of those things that you have to stay in the zone for an extended period of time. Um, and you mentioned the type of distractions that can come through – uh, it's also a game where in between balls, you can have the opposition talk to you. It's not like you're, it's in that, you're not like sprinting, you're turning around and you can have a conversation with someone. How, how much of that mental training did you have to go to, to learn to, um, I guess, stay in the zone for an extended period of time? Cause compared to other sports, say like professional diving, right? You you walk up to the diving thing, you do your dive, you're in the mm. water, it's over in a blink of an eye. But for cricket, mm. like you, six hours at the crease of mental sustaining that mental um, aspect and being in the zone, how much did you have to train to get yourself into that position? Or is it something that you just grew up and naturally evolved into? Yeah, it's something you certainly learn, but the, the best advice, and I kind of alluded to it, was that, I mean, you, I think scientifically, you only have 20 minutes of intense concentration in your day. And so if you, if you understand, it might be 25, whatever the number is, but it's not six hours. And so if you understand that, it's like, I actually only need to concentrate in five to 10 second blocks. And if I'm wasting energy, and I did this a lot in test cricket, and that's probably why I didn't do as well as I, I probably should have. Uh, and I was good at it in, in state cricket. It's like, I only need to concentrate for five, five seconds here. And the next 55 second cycle is going to be completely switched off to building up to that five second moment, as opposed to, I'm going to watch the ball really intently. Okay, I've got the five seconds and then you step out and you, the ball's getting thrown around the field to get back 
bowler and you're still jacked up you're like oh okay come on this next ball this next ball is last ball come on mate you gotta get you know like that is the worst place to be it was like okay that 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 intense concentration for five seconds it is the intensity that you need and then it was back to zero it was sing a song practice your golf swing in your head um dream of of your wife or your daughter or like completely switched off try and see someone in the crowd that you know like something completely distracting and then as the ball kind of got round to mid off near the bowler you'd be like okay let's step back in let's start this routine again you got this one and then your routine would build up from a 20 percent intensity 40 percent intensity as they're running in to maximum intensity as the ball's being released and you'd you know repeat the problem that you can get in particularly when you're under pressure is you don't get that burner being turned off back to zero even if you go back to 50 percent rather than zero you're burning the energy that you're going to need in three hours time and you bat for two hours you get a pretty little 40 no one remembers it um and you're out of the team in five weeks time you know like it's it's about making sure that you you are setting yourself up for for long-term kind of success but it's bloody hard because if you're not on for that ball then you don't get a chance of 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 being there at t so it's like well would i rather use the energy up now to make sure that i'm there in two hours and i'll deal with it then exhausted or am i setting myself up today to just be in the zone for a long period of time and and every day is different and it's the same now at work but the one thing i learned about cricket you cannot roll out the same emotional intensity every day because you don't know how tired you are um what the opposition the intensity of the game you got to be able to kind of match your own intensity to, to what was required at every point. What about playing the game in your head beforehand, like preparing? Can you work yourself up too much where you're like, like you're visualizing, you're seeing, you're thinking about all the things that could go wrong, all the things that could go right. Can it exhaust you before you even get out there? Show me a cricketer and I'll tell you someone that uh, doesn't get much sleep because, mate, the, the, the worst is the waiting. You just want the day to come lying in bed looking at the ceiling for hours and hours and hours on end running through all these scenarios and you, again you've got to find a way to distract yourself because you know the last thing you want to do is wake up and you haven't had any sleep but it's about understanding what great preparation looks like and i've learned this now as well in, in my professional career it's like that moment of preparation it's understanding how they're going to get you out how you want to react the key things that you know you're going to have to do to succeed. And then when your preparation is all wrapped up in a bow and it's, you know, three o'clock the day before, completely forget about it and come back. Like literally do not come back to unwrapping that present until nine o'clock the next morning. Because if you have it wrapped up and you have a little sneak and you want to sneak inside that present the night before, that is a Pandora's box you do not want to open. And so that that comes with experience that, that that's not something any 18 or 20 year old can kind of understand until they've lived and breathed what good good preparation and, and good performance looks like and so it's kind of something you learn over the years but it, it's bloody important because my goodness you can waste some mental energy you know not just the night before the four days leading in i'm going to try train extra hard this week because it's a big game how, do you, how have you tackled that um, I guess the same approach to preparation and pressure now transitioning into 
the investment world. So like, do you treat game days, you've got big meetings or big things coming up that you still approach the same things? Like I've got big, important meeting or a pitch or something like that. I've got so the I've... confidence ready. I'm prepared. I can just go have dinner tonight and I've got that confidence to yeah. go in and smash it out when it's time's right. Yeah, absolutely. So I view any kind of high performance loop in, in three kind of different ways. The first is preparation. The next is performance. And the last piece is reflection. And in cricket, I'd reflect every night to make sure that I was right for the next day. And all the bad things that had happened during the day, I'd put to one side and say, here's how I'm going to improve for tomorrow. I feel like that's the most important part that I learned that is applicable to um, to the professional life. The, the, the preparation stuff is obvious. You know, you don't walk into a meeting with a founder um, or, or a CEO and haven't prepared for that meeting. That is a death wish of underperformance. The performance is is relying on you being able to do your job and having the confidence to do that. And you know that, that's a that's a skill in itself. But there's an assumed kind of bit that you can do your job. That last part about about reflection is probably the bit that I don't see all that much in the professional world. We do it TDM because you know like pretty bloody high performing group of people that are there but generally speaking understanding you know in the corporate world people reflect every six months in six monthly you know reviews with your boss reflection is about real time understanding how you could have handled that moment better most importantly writing it down or diarising it so that you're accountable to that and what you're going to do to make sure it doesn't happen again that feeds back into your preparation for the next meeting and, and, and your performance. And that's how people actually fundamentally get better at their job. But without that reflection piece and that reflection is not a, it's not a tick the box exercise. It's a, I'm looking that person in the mirror. What could I have done better? Why did that not work? And also the, importantly, the positives that really worked. You, were, you were fantastic. X, Y, and Z, A, B, and C. Okay. It was this middle one, you know, that you really, you know that you're better and this is how you're going to make sure that, you know, that that won't happen from uh, from a performance point of view again. I'll punch your touch on that. One of the things that we, uh, in our in our business that we talk about in, in agile environments is like retrospectives and starting having people review and reflect on things at regular intervals. So coming from a high performance background or sporting background, people who are normally used to critiquing themselves, carry that thing as a skill set that they're already used to. But people in business contexts who might have never been involved in team sports or team environments, and they're not used to uh, that personal reflection, it's a new skill that they actually have to learn. So teaching people to mm. understand what it takes to actually do a proper review and how important it is, it's so... Uh, I, I agree 100%. I'm with yeah. you on the same page. Just love that you, you mentioned it because it's just... It's so important. I couldn't agree more. And that's why I actually feel like in this, you know, the, the trend, we're kind of backstepping a little bit, but a lot of athletes transition to big corporates and just because it's a, you know, they made a sponsor at a function and they offer them a job. And, you know, I actually think that the best use of athlete skills are in smaller startup, fast paced, um, you know, the new economy of, of building, you know, as you say, really uh, agile businesses because of those skills that they have around performance and reflection. Because when a, te when a team and a business is moving quickly, 
you have to be able to reflect quickly. And, and you know, I've, and I've said this to a, a few um, transition managers, it's like, if, if you're trying to find jobs for athletes, I'd be pushing them towards these fast growth software businesses. They, they don't need to be coders or engineers, they have no technical skills, but their skills will be well utilized just from their people management skills and, and understanding how what performance looks like in a dynamic, fast moving team. So we love this. Year. We might get you to write our bio. I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> hey, tell us about what what you look for in investing. So, um, moving on from the sports part, now you're in you're part of TDM investing. Tell us about what you specifically look for when trying to take on new ventures. Yeah, so I, I think it's probably worth touching on TDM here because it's a, it's a great story. Just for a bit of background, I'll give you one minute. So I started. 16 years ago um, with a small amount of money to invest uh, it's now grown to about one and a half billion under management so grown from nothing to something substantial uh, you know compounded capital at, at massive rates of return sort of 25 plus for 16 years uh, but the formula that they apply is the same today as it was 16 years ago and this is what attracted me to the business you'll understand why. So what they look for, like every investor, look for a massive growth opportunity. They look for a business, and you know, we're constantly looking for businesses with, with competitive advantages. Like this is obvious stuff. The advantage that we have is that we don't have a, a fund life. It's an evergreen pool of capital. So we can be really long-term investors and, and make long-term bets. It's this third kind of column that got me really interested. And that is, the most important thing we look for in any investment is the people and culture of that business. That is what drives any investment thesis because at the end of the day, we know that great people get great outcomes. That, that might not always be in a straight line. It might not be as always as it's mapped in the pitch deck, but great people with a shared set of values with a mission that's aligned, um, that is open-minded, that is, you know, has a, a huge amount of grit. All these, um, all these kind of inputs to what comes under the broad umbrella of people and culture is what we are looking for. And pretty clearly, you can see why that excites me. Having been in in, in team environments for for sixteen years, high performing teams, I feel like I can add value on on that discussion. Might not be an expert investor. You know, I had 16 years playing cricket, so there are, there are people in our team that are expert investors. But one thing that I feel like I can I can really move quickly on and understand deeply is how high performing and high functioning are the teams that we are looking at in, in at investing. Well, I really like that. So t tell us about some of the things that you're looking for. Then, what are the no nos? So when you're looking for a team, you, what what are the things you see in dysfunctional teams? Yeah, uh, I mean, we could spend all day here, but I'll, I'll give you a couple of, of, of red flags, you know, like basic red flags without going kind of too into it. But you can imagine we take a heap of founder meetings. If a founder is low humility, for instance, uses the word I instead of we, like it's an, it's an obvious one, but if he's talking about his team and his company and it's me and I, that suggests that 
he's not a leader that understands that the business success is not solely reliant on him. And so, you know, uh, that would be a flag for, it might not be, it's not a deal breaker, but it's just a, it's just a, a little radars up a little bit on, on, on this person. Um, you know, there are some absolute deal breakers around, you know, low integrity people. They, they say something and in fact, the fact is not necessarily the opposite of that or the, they've twisted the truth. That, that, that's an absolute deal breaker for the record. Interestingly, when you talk about the people and culture of the business, and we'll ask straight up, can you describe the um, can you describe the culture of the business that you're trying to build in, inside? You get three reactions. One is uh, a glazed look. That's that's a bit of a red flag. Oh, you know, we've got some values on the wall, um, but you know. We're, we're looking at them each year and saying, you know, like there's a, the one is a pretty well-trodden answer. Like people and culture is not a new, new thing anymore. 10 years ago, it, it was a very different conversation, but there are people that now get asked this question and they have a, a well-prepared response and you got to dig into it. And then there's the third where you see their eyes light up and everything about their company is dedicated to the people and the culture. And they can talk from there like, oh, I love it when people are, you know, no one asks this question and, you know, it's so important as our main competitive advantage and here are the values. But this, you know, importantly, it's how we operate, operationalize those values and behaviors and here are the behaviors that we look for. And, you know, like you get more positive flags than red flags just simply by the depth and quality of the response to, to one question that you, that, that you ask. And then you can dig in and try and pull on a few threads and, and unravel that answer. But it's pretty clear that the ones that are passionate about this topic and there are a whole range of, you know, they can be passionate about the topic and you're like, oh, so how do you measure the culture? And they'll say, oh, um, we don't. And you're like, okay, well, now we've got to reconcile that. The, the really passionate ones will say, well, we use Culture App. Have you heard of Culture App? Uh, you know, it measure, measures employee in, uh, engagement every we do pulse surveys and we also do every six months, you know, like they are into it and we say, oh, that's funny. We know culture out because we invest in it. We love Didier, you know, and that opens a conversation. And so, you know, you can't fake after, you know, when you're talking about people and culture, it's hard to fake an answer because there are so many tells now as to what's important and, and how, you know, making that measurement piece and the opera, opera sorry, the opera, 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 say it for me. Opera, why can't I? I had a word the other day, I was trying to stumble through. You have to edit this up. Operationalize, operationalize, thank you. Well, it's one of those things too, like you are dealing with these sort of companies and like in, especially in the software space and this technology space is, talent especially in australia and new zealand the talent pool is not endless like the to find top talent and attract top talent yeah. if you're going to have a company that doesn't have a culture that's going to attract these people purpose mine yeah. well you're not going to get you're not going to get the people who yeah. are going to help bring your your vision or your objectives to life so if you can if you don't create that on focus that in the first place you're never going to get the right type of cats in to make your dreams come true 
That is true. You cannot do it by yourself, particularly in in the in the software world. It's a bit different if you are selling suitcases back in the day. You could you know build a nice family business and have one shop. If you're trying to build a global software business from Australia, and you need amazing technical talent, you need people buying into what you're trying to do and change the world. Um, and that comes down to the culture of, of and we're not talking perks. We're not talking table tennis tables and and dogs in the office, that's kind of table stakes. Well, you know, it, it's about do people feel valued? Do they know their work is recognised? Do they uh, Are they jumping out of bed because the mission is so enthralling to them? You know, it, there's a whole range of things that kind of go into this pot. Um, and for those interests, so, so we actually, and a part of my slashy uh, at the top was hosting a, a podcast for, you know, entrepreneurs in and around the power of people and culture and, and interviewing some of the great CEOs and founders in Australia as to how they've built their companies um, specifically around that. What are some of the trends you're seeing at the moment? Like, where do you see it all playing out, like in terms of investment, founders or the attitude? Like, what, what is there anything that you're picking up that stands out? Uh I mean, we're not, I mean, we're growth investors, so we're not great startup people. You know, I know you've spoken to Nick Crocker and he's he's more of a visionary of where the world is going, you know, with AI and robotics and machine learning and, and the full bit. That's not really our shtick. What we do know is there's never been a better time to start a business in Australia. There's never been a better time to be well-supported, well-funded and not just be localized to you know the nature of the, the world economy and, and software is now you can build a very very big global business from Sydney or Melbourne culture app Atlassian safety culture we're talking massive at least Atlassian specifically the other two are big but that Atlassian's obviously a monster you know what's next there's no stopping the cloud I mean the the migration to cloud is real it's happening at a absolute velocity of you know the, the best companies in the world at the moment are cloud-based companies and and solving problems for businesses um in the cloud and so i know this is this is not obvious this was a trend kind of 10 years ago but we're now seeing the foundations that were built what's next i don't know exactly but i do know there's, there's never been a better time to to dream big and, and try and execute. I like that. I like it. Well, we, who, yeah. who, who inspires you? Who do you learn from now? Like, um, I, I can imagine growing up wanting to be a professional cricketer, you would have had a lot of different role models or people you aspired and looked up to. Um, as you've transitioned into this new world, who are some of the people that you look up to and right. have helped you along your journey? Yeah, interesting. I mean, so I, I deeply believe in the power of mentors and I saw that firsthand in cricket. And my eyes have been opened, um, you know, in the professional world. And, and a mentor is not, you know, historically it's been that kind of grey-haired, you know, sage advice giver that, you know, people rely on for the Yoda style, you know, give, give all the answers to, to unlock the mysteries of the world. Mentors for me are actually people you can have really uh, real conversations with and know that they'll give you a straight answer. 
and that could be someone who's 10 years younger than you. It might be, you know, um, someone like Nick Crocker who have become very friendly with, you know that they will give you a straight answer and they have your best interests at heart. And so the more people you have in your life and the more data points uh, that you can rely on, the better outcomes you get. Because in terms of learning, there's never been a better time in the world to learn. You can learn, you know, formal learning is interesting, but you can pick up your phone, listen to five podcasts today on two times speed from experts in their field all around the world in whatever is interesting you and what you want to learn about. And that's your professional development for the day. You know, that's the world we live in. And so understand, you know, to answer the question, who inspires me now? I'm inspired by too many people to kind of say, yeah, back in the day, it was Ricky Ponting poster on the wall. That's pretty easy to identify. Now it's the founder who is building a wonderful business. It's the other investor who might um, give you a sage piece of advice. Might be my brother, might be my wife, you know, like, uh, I I guess the the longer, the, the short answer is there's no one person, nor is there, um, you know, someone who's giving me, you know, you might have to put, uh, not explaining this particularly well. The energy I get from other people is the inspiration I'm taking. I love that. It's sort of similar to us, like starting a podcast and meeting all these new people. I feel like you can filter it through, like because we're having all these awesome conversations all the time. So it's like, you almost back what you're listening to all the time and it goes through this filter and mm. then we just sort of action it from, from there, I suppose. I don't know. That's how I sort of feel it for us. Well, it's been, we've been yeah. so lucky since starting our podcast is that we've been able to meet so many people across so many different industries and fields who have been involved in lots of different things. But the common trends and stuff that come out and what, what we're so excited about this conversation is around like the people and culture aspect, the attaching purpose to what you're doing, putting value out in the world, uh, understanding what it is you're trying to achieve and really being driven to a, to get there. And some of these things that, um, especially when you're talking about like fighting fear and going out there to be an opening batsman, we got to chat to Mark Matthews, which is still a podcast that stood out to us. And he has, um, I don't professional know if surfer, yeah, professional big, big wave, wave surfer. surfer. And I don't right. know if you've seen his doco yeah. fighting fear, but he is just, yeah. he's an inspirational dude. And the things that you were talking about, it's, it's funny. These people who, reach the pinnacles of what they do and they can really excel in high performance situations. A lot of, uh, a lot of similarities come through and it's not what you would expect to see. Like nerves are still real. The fear is still real, but it's about how you step up to the plate and then be able to, I guess, distract yourself from all that shit and turn up and, and play the game and perform. Mm. It's sick. That's, uh, that, that's pretty, pretty good summary yeah it's much more eloquent than i stumbled my way through the last few minutes but you're right so <laughs> tell us about um next steps for you like what's what's on the radar for the rest of the year as you sort of take it day by day or do you look sort of far in the future yeah i'm, I'm very much in the moment kind of I'm, I'm always thinking what does my life look like in three to five years and am i on that path but knowing one thing i have learned the last couple of years is it's like a sport is like a pyramid. You start at the bottom and you work your way up to the, it's a very defined pinnacle that being the national team or you know, whatever you're trying to achieve. The, what I love about 
the big wide world of, of, of business is it's like a tree and you can swing from branch to branch and you don't know until you're on that next branch what the what the next branch available that you can reach is. And so it seems ridiculous to say, oh, in five years time, I want to be X because there's so many different branch swings in between those moments that you might end up somewhere completely different. I love what I do every day at TDM. I love what I do with Tripod Coffee. Um, I'm loving contributing back to sport uh, and cricket specifically through my, my board uh, role with Cricket New South Wales. What else is there? I don't know. But every time you, I, all I do know is every time you give energy to all those things, opportunities come up to give energy to other things that you're passionate about. I feel like there's a million quotes in this um, pod. I'm going to, I'm going to be busy just flicking through the clips and <laughs> you've just laid out some absolute gold. Um, well, before we let you go, what are some of your best career moments? Is there anything that stands out where you're like far out? I can't believe I've done like, I'm so proud of myself and what I've been able to achieve or yeah. as a, as a group or a collective as well, like a team aspect as well. Yeah. So the things that stand out and people always, Oh, it must've been amazing to make your test debut and, Know, get a hundred or whatever you know what about the tip it's like yeah that, that was it was fun the things that i remember now that i've finished the things that i rem- remember the most and the things you're left with are not the personal achievements it's the friendships you made and the shared memories that you had with those teammates and so two things stand out you know i was lucky to to make some wonderful friends but the things that stand out are the the shield victory that we had in in Tasmania, you know, a, a, a group of you, you wouldn't call them misfits because we were a bloody good team, but you know, sort of raveled, um, compiled of, of people who had been released from other teams and other states, some great local players, an unbelievable culture that had been built, and we you know dominated domestic cricket, but. Uh, the, that team and the the championships that we won, two Shields, two one-day tournaments in, in three years, they're the memories that stick out, actually. It's not it's not the individual moments at all. It's the, you know, partnership I had with George Bailey in Perth where, you know, all we could talk about and you're like, is we're off to see the National who, that were our favourite um, band in concert that night. And we're like, for every 50 we put on here, we'll have an extra schooner at the, at the, uh, at the gig tonight. And so we go, yeah, that's, a, that's one schooner for you. And we get another 50. Okay, I can have a schooner now too. You know, like it, it's those moments of, of shared experience, things that we'll talk about and, and reflect on for decades that, that are the things that I'm probably most proud of because I've got to experience it with other people that, you know, Without shared experience, there's nothing in my well, mind. What was that movie, Into the Wild? Like, um, I don't know if you've seen that movie, but uh, Emil Hirsch just goes, like Christopher McCandless, and he said, um, happiness is only real when shared or something like that. Like, it, it's actually, it's true, isn't it? Because that's why I feel like you look at individual sports and you're like, yeah, it could be, it would be great and all that sort of stuff, but you can see how they can get wrapped yeah. up in themselves. But like team sports and that shared success and, it's like a moment in time, isn't it? It's not one specific thing. It's more like those three years, like those three years that you said were just like hanging out with your mates and, and really building something together, yeah. being part of the journey together and to achieve something at the end 
I feel like that's it's just a celebration, isn't it? It's like it, it's special. Yeah, the shared the shared achievement uh, and building towards that achievement. Sometimes that achievement might be the championship. It, it might not be, um, but that shared sense of purpose in trying to achieve that is what inspires me, and that's why I, I don't want to work for myself. But you know, I need to get out of bed and know that they're that I'm working in a team. Um, it's just something that I'm I'm passionate about, and it played out in in the cricket world for a long time, and and hopefully now in business but but you're right um i mean just look at i'm sure you you know read andre agassi's book or tiger woods documentary or you know like that whole range of people that play uh individual sports that my goodness they 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 get the accolades and fame but i don't think they get a whole heap of of other person that they miss out on i'm sure there's, there's a lot of benefit but they miss out on on all those benefits of team sport. 100%. Well, if any any advice here, you get your kids into team sports, I reckon. Yeah. Mate, thank you so much for um, sharing some words of wisdom with us. This has been an unreal chat. I can't wait to oh, get this I one out. I just want to world. drop this tomorrow, man. I'm that excited. Oh, mate, go, you might need to do some editing as I spit some words out and can't, uh, can't collect my thoughts. So feel free to edit liberally. But, fellas, just, I mean, hit, hit a lot of topics I'm, I'm deeply passionate about. So... Thanks for having me. I've just, you know, taken a lot of energy from from this as well. So when you talk about inspiration, you two have been my inspiration. For oh, mate. oh, mate, we love compliments oh, here. So thank yeah, you very much. Yeah. Oh, we'll have to catch up in person when we can um, travel around and, and do all that stuff. Man, I just want to keep replaying that chat and taking some notes because he had some solid wisdom, didn't he, Rob? Well, we've brought our good friend Hamish Moore in for special comments around Ed Cow, and he's our uh, self-proclaimed. Best cricketer in our set in our network. You are kidding. Yeah. So what you, you were telling us before, Ed Cowan, how he's made a ton against the West Indies. What did you What did you think of the performance? No, I don't know if it was against against the West Indies. I actually can't remember who it was against, but um, hey, he was pretty good. He played played at the highest level for, uh, for Australia, and, and and he was pretty good with the bat. So um, he opened the batting. Is that something that you do as well? So you hey. resonate well. He said he said he loved opening the batting because he knew. When he could prepare and and set reset mentally throughout the game, do you feel similar vibes with that? <laughs> huh? huh? Is it true? Mate, he's very good at what he does, so you you can only learn from the best. So hey, it's it's good to have him on the pod as well. Oh, mate, yeah. fucking! You get splinters in your ass from sitting on the fence, Mishy, huh? <laughs> Giving us an opinion, huh? Anyway, Ed Cowan, he's a nice bloke. I'd say we're friends now, Rob. What do you reckon? I think we're friends. If you have enjoyed this pod or you like the other pods that we've been listening to, we've been listening to, you've been listening to. Oh, we've all been listening. Hey, everyone's been listening. Uh, send one to a friend, like, share, subscribe, do all the good things. And uh, if you can, leave us a review on Apple Reviews. It would go a long, long way to help us out.